You're listening to The Jay Barker Show on Tide 100.9 in Tuscaloosa. Welcome to Big News Sports. Featuring Lars Anderson, New York Times best-selling author of 12 books and a 20-year veteran of Sports Illustrated. Matt Coulter, a former Alabama Broadcaster of the Year and longtime media personality. And Christian Miller, a national championship winning linebacker at Alabama who was drafted by the Carolina Panthers. Here's Lars, Matt, and Christian. Welcome in to Big Noon Sports. It's a rainy Tuesday here in the heart of Alabama in Birmingham. I'm Lars Anderson. Matt Coulter has the day off. Christian Miller will be joining us shortly. And I wanted to start with the, on a personal note here and uh, ask, ask you guys about uh, how do you deal with disappointment? We all have to uh, endure it. Um, this morning I had a very, what's the word, uh, challenging, <laughs> challenging uh, conversation with a book editor. And, uh, you know, we just sort of disagreed on a couple things on the latest book project that I'm working on. And ultimately the editor is always going to be right. And you have to realize your place in the universe when you're a, a lowly writer. Uh, you just have to, uh, you know, try to acquiesce to the demands of the editor as best you can. Um, and uh, while also making your case for, you know, how you think something should go. And if if you need to get a third party involved, if I really wanted to you know, uh, go to the mattresses, so to speak. Uh, I could bring in my literary agent, but I don't want to have any bad blood with my editor because I, I hope to work with him again. Uh, he's a great guy, great at a great house, Simon and Schuster, and and um, so I was thinking, and and, and I, I, yesterday or uh, last week, I spoke to uh, a, a bunch of high school students. Uh, down on campus uh, on Tuscaloosa who were there for the day and uh, th- my main message to them was the the biggest break in my career happened because of one thing and it was my attitude um, I was working at Sports Illustrated young writer uh, I was essentially uh, did a lot of fact-checking uh, and then every once in a while, um, the, uh, those, uh, uh, us young writers would be thrown crumbs and we would get writing assignments. And so I did that for, you know, a year or two. I uh, didn't really get major opportunities. Um, but, and that was one reason why I started writing books on the side, because I had all this sort of intellectual energy built up and it just had to come out. Well, one day I'm in my office and uh, in the Time and Life building, really nice office there at 50th and uh, Avenue of the Americas. My window looked over the uh, marquee of Radio City Music Hall. Boy, it seems like a lifetime ago. But um, 
get a call, and it's uh, from, I see on the caller ID, it's from Terry McDonald, who is the top editor at the magazine. And usually when the big boss calls you, it's not a good thing. <laughs> and um, anyway, he said, Lars, come on down to my office. need to talk. And I was, uh, you know, dreading that was like, uh, it, it felt like it was a walk to the gallows there that that my, my career at Sports Illustrated was about to uh, be over before it even began. And uh, sit down in, in his office and, you know, Terry had a very unique way of communicating. Uh, he just actually came out with a book detailing his years as uh editing different, of uh, being the top editor of different magazines in New York, including Rolling Stone. And, uh, and Terry just knew everybody in the, in the city. Very famous editor. Anyway, so Terry sits me down, and he said, Lars, cars, cars. And I absolutely have no idea what he's talking about. And he said, we need you to follow the cars. And still no idea what he's talking about. And then finally, he uh, instead of just speaking in metaphor, he uh, he cut to the chase and said he wanted me to take over the NASCAR beat. And at the time, I, de I detested NASCAR. I, I, I hated everything about NASCAR. I didn't think it was a sport. Uh, I didn't uh, pay attention to it. Uh, I'd never been to a race. Couldn't change a tire. Couldn't change my oil. <laughs> I mean, I guys. I lived in Manhattan. Didn't own a car. Um, but, but instead of thinking that covering NASCAR was beneath me, I absolutely embraced the challenge. And I just said, I said, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And because one, I knew it was going to be a chance to get in a magazine a lot because NASCAR. Uh, was feeding SI literally millions of dollars a year in advertisement. And so there had to be corresponding editorial copy to go with the ads. And so I knew it was going to at least get me in the magazine. And then I just sort of attacked it with, with fresh eyes. I mean, you know, I, again, I don't know anything about what goes on underneath the hood. Uh, I'd, I'd have trouble even identifying a carburetor today. <laughs> but um, so what I did was I, I focused on the things that are, I thought our 22 million readers would want me to focus on. And that was personalities, trends, uh, try to explain sort of in big picture fashion why one team was better than another what makes a good driver? Uh, how do you develop hand-eye-foot coordination? Uh, why is it that a driver loses his edge at roughly age 43? That seems to be the magic number. And sort of just delving into these issues and, and really just, again, approaching it with enthusiasm. And, and I told the high school students this, that the one thing you can control that the one thing that you can always control is your attitude. And so that's what I had to remind myself of this morning when I had this uh, rough conversation. And uh, just control your attitude. Be a positive person. 
nobody wants to be around a negative person. Nobody wants to be around um, somebody with a bad attitude. And I've seen th- I've seen that so many times in, in in journalism that you could be the most talented writer in the world, but if you have a bad attitude, man, you're you're not going to last at any uh, major outlet for very long because editors won't tolerate it. I think everybody needs to remember that they can be replaced. One person who can't be replaced is Christian Miller, though. Christian, are you up in Tuscaloosa? Yes, I've, uh, <laughs> I've arrived. I'm here. A lot of So, Christian, just uh, along the same lines, just, uh, you know, again, I had a, a rough talk this morning with an editor and then reminded myself that need to have a good attitude. How, how have you dealt in your life with not necessarily rejection, but just uh, everybody goes through trials and tribulations. How, how have you always tried to respond? Well, first and foremost, I just accept it. And uh, I just realize that nothing's perfect. And I've always been a firm believe, uh, believer that trials and tribulations actually build character. And, you know, to your point about disappointment, uh, I really believe that disappointment is a result of expectations. So I just do uh, my best to to not really create any expectations on anyone or anything. That way I'm not necessarily let down um, when the results aren't what I expected. Um, So that's that's what I do. I just, I I don't create any expectations. I kind of just go with the flow and uh, I accept things for what they are and know that if they don't work out um, how I planned or how I envisioned, um, that there must be something better coming. And I truly believe that. And I just, I know that, you know, it's a part of life. There's ebbs and flows, ups and downs, and uh, that's what makes life so special and, and so enjoyable. So, yeah, you just got to look at the positives and things. That's pretty much how I go about it. You know, Coach Saban, he uh, says quite often, don't waste a failure or don't waste sort of coming up short. What what, what does that mean to you? And, and, and I'm sure you heard him say that or deliver that message to the team. Well, failure is a great opportunity to learn. And that's basically what he's saying. You can either, you know, sulk about a loss or a failure. You can hold your head down. You can lose hope. Or you can choose to, to be motivated, to work harder, to use it um, as a propeller to fuel yourself and to to exceed what you originally um, were aiming for. And and that's basically what he's saying. And that goes for sports, life, you name it. You know, uh, don't don't waste a failure. You know, use it as a teaching moment. And if you can learn from others, even better, right? You know, you have an opportunity to learn from somebody else. That way you don't have to make that mistake. You know, he says that a lot too. Um, so it's just those little things that I've learned from him and um, sports in general that I've carried over in my daily life that's helped me, you know, become a better person, better uh, son, better friend. Uh, just a better man in general. Is Coach Saban, does he offer sort of life lessons quite often to players, or is it more sort of as you get older and mature in the program and, you know, you, you've been with him for two, three years and, you know, maybe you'll have a, a private conversation, or, or does he try to sort of uh, deliver those lessons on a consistent basis to the team? I would say to the team, you know, you hear little nuggets here and there, you know, through the team meetings or anytime, you know, he's speaking uh, to individuals or the team, you, you'll hear him drop some knowledge. And um, it was very common for a lot of coaches um, and players as well. You'd always, you know, be encouraged to take notes, but it was very common to see coaches with notepads. And I think it was inspired by Coach Cochran, even him working with Coach Saban for all these years. He always was learning something new. 
So he would have a, a small little notepad that he would take notes in every single team meeting that Coach Saban spoke um, because you would just always learn something new, whether it was a life lesson or just some type of advice that you could carry on with you. Um, you always were trying to learn something, and, and it was heavily encouraged for the players to do so as well. Um, so, yeah, he's a very knowledgeable person with a lot of insight um, who can definitely uh, help teach you a lot of things about, you know, life in general, but definitely about sports and football. You know, you, you know you're just signing up for that, but uh, uh, on the side you also get – a daily dose of uh, some very good uh, insight and knowledge uh, to go along with the football knowledge. And our next guest, his college coach, uh, was the same way, John Cooper at Ohio State. Uh, our next guest is going to be Matt Finkus, who's going to be joining us next. Matt, uh, former All-American defensive end at Ohio State, now lives in Columbus, covers the Buckeyes, and uh, he's kind enough to join us. He's uh, doing some wine tasting right now in Niagara Falls. Uh, whenever we talk to Matt, Josh, he's at some exotic location. Uh, but he's uh, so we'll we'll see if we can get the uh, the cell service to work as he uh, samples different wines in Niagara. But uh, this is big news sports, and we'll be right back. The best sports talk in Alabama. This is Big Noon Sports. Want to know what's going on with the Crimson Tide? Download the Tide 100.9 app today. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Mostly cloudy this afternoon and tonight. A chance of widely scattered showers. The high today, 74. Tonight's low, 59. Tomorrow, a very warm and breezy day. A mixture of clouds and sunshine. The high at 81. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 72 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back into Big Noon Sports. I'm Lars Anderson, along with Christian Miller. We are now joined by Matt Finkus, former All-American defensive end at Ohio State, now a media commentator for the Buckeyes. And uh, Matt, whenever we talk to you, you're either on some uh, desert island uh, sipping a pina colada, and now... You texted me that you are tasting wine uh, at Niagara. Can you see Niagara Falls from where you are? Uh, not currently, but you can from our hotel. So, yeah, we're, we're up uh, in wine country, which is a little bit north of uh, the actual falls. and A lot of wineries up here, so doing some wine tasting today. Well, uh, I'm very envious. Very envious. I've uh, I've been up uh, to. I've been up there. And are, are you going to go on the Maiden of the Mist? Have you been on the, no, the, the tour yet? Where you get time? Yeah, it's a little little chilly. Yeah, yeah we yeah we walked down below and underneath and did the caves and stuff uh, yesterday. But yeah, the boat is not running in the uh, 30 degree weather up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for taking some time to join uh, Christian Miller and, and myself. Um, just want to start with uh, C.J. Stroud. And uh, I, I heard from an NFL scout the other day that his, his head is, is, is spinning because 
the C.J. Stroud that he saw play against Georgia in the playoffs to him was clearly the number one overall pick in the draft. But the C.J. Stroud he saw for the rest of the season, you know, he's still a top five pick, but maybe not the number one overall guy. What is your assessment of C.J. after watching him very closely for a few years? Yeah, I think he's definitely one of the I mean, top two quarterbacks for sure. I think he and Bryce Young are right there. Uh, when you talk about his skill set and, and what it does at the next level, uh, I think it translates better to the NFL than almost every other quarterback that's coming out of college right now. Just when you talk about, you know, able to deliver the ball on time, in routes, you know, accuracy, poison the pocket, all those kind of things. I mean, the knock against CJ was kind of, you know, he wasn't running the ball enough. He wasn't pulling it down with pressure. Well, that's not a problem in the NFL. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's not something it's, it's nice to have. You know, if you've got a Josh Allen or if you've got a Patrick Mahomes, but the NFL is, is gauged around, you know, letting guys sit in the pocket. You can't touch them. You can't, I mean, you, you can't touch them below the knees. You can't touch them above the shoulders. I mean, it, sit in the pocket and deliver the ball to the, to the weapons. And I think that's what CJ does really, really well. He's a great student of the game, recognizes coverages, doesn't put the ball into coverage uh, hardly ever. So I think that, uh, that that along with, you know, you talk about having an experience of, spending three years under a you know top NFL quarterback coach and Ryan Day when he was in the league uh, with the 49ers and, and with the Eagles. And, and I think that adds up to me as a guy that you definitely want uh, on your team. He's a quiet leader. You know, he's got all the intangibles. And, uh, um, you know, as far as NFL scouts go, you know, there's a reason that they're scouts and not coaching. So I don't know how much stock I, I sometimes put into the scouting reports of those guys. All right, now let's let's put you in this equation. You're an NFL GM, and you got the top pick. You need a quarterback. Are you taking C.J. Stroud or Bryce Young, and why? You know, I think that's a toss-up. I think that that's really going to depend on how that interview how that interview process goes. I think both are outstanding young men. I think it's going to be the guy who fits into your culture and plan. I think you know, depending on on what team you are and and where you're at, and do you need a little bit more mobile of a guy? You think with your offensive line to try to build. I think that, you know, that's where you go with a Bryce Young. If you're building a team and you want a Joe Burrow type of a quarterback, that's where you go with the C.J. Stroud. I think, you know, they, they both got great intangibles that they bring to the table, but I think that that's going to come down to just a little bit of minutia of what you want your offense to look like, who your coordinator is, what weapons do you have around. Do you need a guy who can escape the pocket a little bit more, or are you comfortable with a guy who's just going to sit back there and deliver the football? Uh, Matt, you uh, sacked your fair share of quarterbacks both in college and in the NFL and in NFL Europe where we uh, got to know each other. Um, do you think Bryce, or Bryce Young's uh, stature uh, is going to be an issue for him in the NFL? Not just necessarily his height, and let's say he measures at, at 5'11", but just the fact that he just, his stature, he's got sort of a little bit narrower shoulders than, than your typical NFL quarterback. You know, I don't think so. Again, I think the, the game has changed so much where you can see, you know, guys that are that don't fit the typical mold of what it used to be years ago. The Peyton Mannings, of the Tom Brady's, of the six foot four, six foot five, Ben Roethlisberger, guy who's got to be able to stand in the pocket and throw over guys. Um, you know, it's just it's changed. You know, the game has changed a little bit more. You know, you can do short rolls. You can get guys on the edge a little bit where they're not necessarily outside the pocket, but you just 
move the pocket with him a little bit. You see it with Kyler Murray, you know, a lot. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily the thing. Now, if he was a guy, um, you know, I think the knock on Tua has been kind of sustained. As, as, you know, he's a guy who got hurt in college a lot. He's a guy who's gotten hurt in the NFL. I think that, to me, if I'm making those kind of decisions, durability, especially when you're paying $40, 50000000 million to a guy, is more important to me than, like, those little minute, uh, you know, physical traits that I think can be overcome. Is he durable? Can he sit there? Can he take a hit? Is he going to be, you know, dinged up and tweaked up? And if he is, does that really affect his play? I mean, you, you've you got some guys who, you know, again, I, I'll go back to Patrick Mahomes, you know, high ankle sprain, he can play through it. He can get the job done. You get some guys that, you know, get a little twinge in their hamstring and they're out for six weeks. So it's that kind of mentality of, of, of the player and that durability, I think, that factors in more than just the physical traits. We saw Ohio State come up short against Georgia, but they, they played a great game. Uh, talk about what they have coming back next season, and, and do you feel that they have the, the tools necessary to make another run? I think they do. I think that you, when you look at the skilled positions that they've got coming back, I mean, the backfield is coming back. Uh, probably two of the best wide receivers in the country. I mean, in my opinion, you had the best player in the country, Marvin Harrison Jr. last year, mm-hmm. um, who just some for some reason no one – no one thought was was that great, and I mean, I you know I've watched that kid for a long time. Played against his dad, um, you know he's got everything possible to to be an uh, you know a Heisman Trophy winning type of guy, and um, from route running to the ability to make a catch to the ability to make you know a play after the catch, all of those things he brings to the table. Omeka Abuka is kind of the uh, uh, you know the guy who can get down the field, stretch it vertically, make those big catches too, and and you know the tight ends coming back as well. Uh, so caged over. Um, you know, I think this will be interesting to see how Justin uh, Justin Fry comes in and, and puts his imprint on this offensive line now in his second year. Um, you know, I think that was kind of the, the lack a little bit last year of some of those guys that had been around for a while. You know, there was some question of the toughness of being able to really run the ball when we had to. And I think as the, as the season wore on a little bit, and I think in that Georgia game, you could see uh, the offensive line started to turn the corner a little bit. Um, you know, coming back on the defense, you got a lot of guys coming back as well. And I think that Jim Knowles with another kind of year under his belt and a little bit of understanding too. I think that, you know, there were times last year where, um, you know, he was playing a, a game, you know, and he admitted he was trying to win downs instead of trying to win a game. You know, I mean, blitzing, zero blitzing on third and 14, you know, something that you don't need to do uh, when you're up seven points. And, um, I think he's going to grow a little bit as a coordinator and, and making those calls and realizing, you know, kind of what's on the line with this. But, I mean, tool-wise, I think they've got everything coming back that they really need. Obviously, the quarterback position is going to be big when you lose a guy like C.J. Stroud. Uh, you know, right now, I think that it looks like it's going to be Kyle McCord's job to lose uh, going into the spring. Um, plenty of talent there, plenty of arm talent, really a, a studious guy, you know, uh, one of those guys that you see in the facility all the time. You know, I mean, he, he's just, he's there, he's studying, he's working. You know, he, he's one of those guys that comes in early, stays late. So, um, you know, how he progresses in the spring is going to be a big telling factor. But again, you've got an offensive line and, and the, you know, two outstanding running backs to fall back on, probably three now because you've got a couple of true freshmen coming in. Matt, uh, talking with Matt Finkus, former Ohio State All-American, uh, who now uh, works in the media in Columbus, covers Ohio State. Uh, Matt, it, it, it's amazing to think, but uh, USC and UCLA, they're going to be in the Big Ten here starting on August 2nd, 2024. 
How is the addition of the, 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 the L.A. market and these two teams going to change the dynamic, you think, of the Big Ten? You know, I think it's going to be really interesting how, how they're going to factor into this. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a different style of play that, that you know, in the Pac-12 as opposed to the Big Ten and, and how they're going to be able to adjust. How, you know, how is UCLA and USC going to be able to go to Wisconsin uh, in November, come to Columbus in November and do those kind of things. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, I think both of those schools, great coaches now, uh, you know, Chip has really turned it around with UCLA. Um, I think that you're going to see those, those two programs have to kind of adapt to what you need to do in October and November to survive in the Big Ten because you can't just outscore everybody. I mean, you've got to be able to play defense. I think, uh, you know, Michigan has showed that the last couple of years and what they've been able to do against the Buckeyes. I mean, you, you know, you've got a high-scoring, high-powered offense. You play some good defense, and, and you can turn the tables on them. That's what Ohio State has done to Oregon, you know, the last four or five times that they played in high-profile games. So, to me, that's going to be the interesting thing to watch because both those guys, super good offensive coaches, they come in, they want to score – but you got to bring your defense. I mean, you, you guys know being an SEC country, got to bring your defense in October and November if you want to compete for championships. No doubt about that. Defense, indeed. All right, Matt, I want to ask you real quick about Big Ten basketball. Uh, Ohio State, what are your thoughts on their basketball program right now? You know, Alabama's been playing phenomenal, something <laughs> we haven't seen in a while. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the basketball program up there? Boy, it's been tough to watch. Uh, you know, we, the couple games we've been to, it has been tough to watch. I'm no basketball expert by any stretch of the imagination, but um, you know, it, it's it's been it's been tough to watch the team kind of just not not fight. Um, you know, and I think that's some of the players have called that called that out. You know, I mean, Chris Holtman has called it out. You've seen him play a lot of younger guys um, for a long time, longer periods of time now. Um, you know. And, He's had the discussions with Gene. They kind of knew what this year was going to be. You know, they, they really lack the firepower and the score that they have had in the past couple of years. Um, you know, Bryce Sensball has had a good freshman season, but again, you know, you can't put that much, you know, weight on his shoulders. So, um, you know, they got a great recruiting class coming in next year, and, and you got to just kind of try to look and, and see what you're able to build and, and move forward to. But, yeah, this is, this is a season that I think, probably the coach and the ad saw coming but i don't think the fans saw coming um and it's been i think it's been frustrating here in columbus because i think colton has done a great job up until this point um you know being able to do this i mean granted you know i mean it's a football school so i mean you know <laughs> yeah you've got the resources there to you know with the facilities and stuff like that but um you know high state is a football school but they're expected to, be, to have a you know they, they've had some really good teams in basketball and have made some runs and this is just not up to not up to par but Hopefully they can get it turned around here next year. you got to look forward. Matt, uh, Christian and I were talking at the top of the show, just some of the life lessons that Coach Saban has passed along to his players, such as Christian. And you and I have talked over the years about what a, a significant role uh, Coach John Cooper uh, played in your life. What what are some things that you remember that Coach Cooper passed along to you that you still carry with you today? You know, I think what makes those guys great and what makes those coaches, you know, valuable when players look back to them is they don't just prepare you for playing football in those four years. You know, they look and they start having discussions, especially in your third and fourth year, and they'll do it a little bit when you get there. But really when you're starting to exit the program, 
they really start talking to you about how you need to build your future and what the things that you need to do to be, you know, successful in life and the connections you need to make and the attitudes that you need to have and, and what you're doing, you know, post football, um, you know, regardless whether you're going to play in the NFL or not. And I think that's, that's the real value that those coaches have. And then just, you know, having building that relationship over those four years that you feel comfortable being able to go back and talk to those guys at any time. And I think, again, good coaches bring that out. I mean, I think Urban's got a lot of that into him as well. You know, those coaches or those kids that have played for him, you know, feel very comfortable with him. And same thing with Trestle. So, you know, we've been pretty lucky here to have a good run. I know you guys have down there as well, but that's the big thing that those guys bring to the table. Do you think Urban Meyer got a bad rap? I, I know you know him very well, uh, but did he get a bad rap for his time in the NFL? I think that that was a leap he was not prepared to make. <laughs> I, I will say that. I think, I, I think that his style did not translate to, to the NFL, and I think he would he needed to really think. I know he, he made some efforts and made some phone calls and talked to some guys about what he would have to change. But, I mean, it, it's a it's a different world, as, I mean, I'm sure Nick Saban knows. And, and, you know, all those guys that have tried to make that leap know and have come back to college, it's just different. And, and, you gotta, and you've got to be able to make that transition, and, and he wasn't able to do it. Will we see Urban Meyer on the sideline again of a, of a college football team? You know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I would – my – that tells me no. I would say 70% no, 30% yes. Um, but I think as every year goes on, that no gets, gets stronger and stronger. All right, Matt, uh, go back to the wine tasting. Uh, have you have you had, are, are you are you more of a red guy or a white? I'm a red guy. Yeah, we, we, we drink mainly red. Yeah. We've got a couple whites yeah. on the table right now that we're working through. Well, um, when I come back in my next life, I want to be Matt Finkus. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you so much, Matt. (laughs) This is Big Noon Sports. We'll be right back. From T-Town to the Plains, this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. Odds Charger, where Miles handed over a forty caliber handgun with, quote, one in the head, unquote, meaning a round was chambered and the gun was readied, ready to fire. Soon after, Davis allegedly opened fire on the black Jeep in which Harris and her companions were sitting. Culpepper, who again is the lead investigator, said video evidence, forensic evidence, and witness testimony all corroborate the narrative that Davis fired first. Harris was struck and killed, and the driver of the Jeep returned fire with a weapon of his own and struck Davis in the shoulder, Culpepper said. Davis was still wearing a sling for the injury as of this morning. The driver of the Jeep fled the scene and made it to nearby Walk of Champions, where a University Alabama police cruiser was parked, sparking a major law enforcement response and investigation. Miles and Davis were arrested the following day and both charged with capital murder for their alleged roles in Harris's death. Culpepper, again, the lead investigator, said Miles and Davis, Davis both lied about how Davis had come to be shot and denied any involvement in the shooting, but said Miller's account of what preceded the shooting 
almost exactly matched what investigators gathered from video evidence and other witness testimony. The hearing, I believe, as of 10 a.m. this morning, it was still going on. And if you want to try to ascertain more information, I suggest you follow uh, the Tuscaloosa thread. And that's just TuscaloosaThread.com. And the story is right there uh, for you to uh, for you to read. Uh, and certainly more details will uh, be emerging from this uh, very troubling, tragic event. Um, and there's really, you know, nothing more for, uh, for me to add uh, other than just, uh, you know, thinking about uh, the, the victim in, in this case and uh, her, her family and uh, just uh, what a what a what a just a, a tragic set of circumstances and and um, you know it's just sad I mean I, I there's really I'm rarely one who is out of words but I, I'm out of words to describe this situation other than um, sadness uh, because many lives were ruined that night and one life was taken a mother was taken from her child and um, and there's going to be repercussions of this for a long long time all right we're going to take a break we'll be right back this is big noon sports from t-town to the plains this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. Want to know what's going on with the Crimson Tide? Download the Tide 100.9 app today. Score! Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Mostly cloudy this afternoon and tonight. A chance of widely scattered showers. The high today, 74. Tonight's low, 59. Tomorrow, a very warm and breezy day. A mixture of clouds and sunshine. The high at 81. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 73 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back to Big News Sports. Uh, let's get right to Stephen Detheridge, who uh, has been covering the events of this morning uh, down at the uh, courthouse in the, in the Tuscaloosa jail, I believe. Stephen, thanks for coming into studio and joining Big News Sports. Uh, just give us the latest on what you learned uh, this morning. Uh, I essentially just read your uh, in, entire article on air uh, you did a nice job of summarizing everything, but uh, uh, just give us again your interpretation of what you what you saw, what you heard, what surprised you the most. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm, I think that uh, the main takeaway is that the judge in this case, who is uh, Joanne Janik, a district court judge here in Tuscaloosa County, 
uh, did not opt to issue an order today about uh, bond for Miles or his co-defendant Davis. Um, She said that, you know, she would take all of the uh, evidence and arguments that were um, before her this morning in a hearing that was a little over three and a half hours and that uh, she would issue an order on whether either defendant would be given bond at a later date. So we're going to keep our eyes on that. and uh, make sure that we have that order as soon as it's posted. But there were different, you know, there were interesting developments on all sides from from the prosecution, from the defense, new details that we had never heard before, including the confirmation of uh, some rumor that we had that, that people had heard that uh, Brandon Miller, you know, another Alabama basketball player, was closely in close proximity to this uh, to this shooting, and that he he brought uh, he drove to the. Uh, to the strip and and that when Darius Miles allegedly handed over the uh, gun used in the killing to his friend Michael Davis that that occurred in uh, uh, the Dodge Charger that Brandon Miller brought to the scene. Uh, We heard from the defense for the first time who argued that uh, the victim, Jamia Harris, was with her cousin and boyfriend and that uh, her boyfriend was the true aggressor in this case, that he had become upset uh, at seeing Michael Davis dancing inappropriately in the street. And the two of them exchanged words. Uh, Davis, you know, uh, his attorneys said that he indicated he was not interested in uh, Harris or her boyfriend or the other woman in the vehicle with them. And that uh, that was the, the origination of the beef. But uh, attorneys for um, for Mr. Davis now claim that um, Jamia Harris's boyfriend, the, the victim who was killed, that her boyfriend fired first. They claim that video evidence is going to back that up, that he was the threat and that uh, the, the Davis was acting in self-defense. And that when when Miles, when Darius Miles gave him the gun, it was for protection, not aggression. That they were worried about people who would become angry at them for the way that, uh, that Davis was behaving in the street. And that they became concerned that uh, this, this driver, Cedric Johnson, who was in the vehicle with the victim who was killed, that he and a few friends seemed like they were planning something uh, foul for for Miles and for Davis, and that when the, the gun changed hands, when Brandon Miller allegedly brought it to the scene and it had moved from Darius Miles' hands into uh, Michael Davis's hands, who goes by Buzz, uh, that that was for protection. They were worried that this other group of guys was going to come and, and uh, cause them trouble and that they wanted to be ready. And so it's the first time we've heard from the defense uh, claiming that you know, this was this was uh, an act of self-defense that the driver in the vehicle fired first. Uh, they claimed that video evidence will back that up. That was not played today in court. Um, well, what else? Uh, there are uh, both defendants' mothers, uh, Darius Miles' mother and uh, Michael Davis's mother, were in court today. Um, Darius Miles' mother testified that uh, she is temporarily relocated to Tuscaloosa and that she's been here since shortly after the shooting and she lives here. Uh, his mother is actually a police officer in Washington, D.C. with uh, more than 20 years experience. And she told Judge Janik today that uh, if Miles is allowed bond, that he will stay with her in her new residence in Tuscaloosa County and that as a law enforcement officer, as a mother, 
Uh, she will ensure that, uh, that Darius shows up at court when he's supposed to, that he participates in community correction, that he keeps an ankle monitor on, uh, that she just wants her son out of the Tuscaloosa County Jail. Uh, the picture was not as rosy for the co-defendant, Michael Davis. His mother was also there, but she said that uh, she and uh, Davis's father both still live in um, in the D.C. area in Maryland, and they would not be able to come back to Tuscaloosa County. They, have, they also revealed that Davis had been arrested before and uh, that a gun was involved in that crime before, which may negatively impact his chances at getting a bond assigned from Judge Janik. Uh, but those were the, the major takeaways. You know, you've got the defense now arguing that um, Miles was acting in self-defense. Uh, we had the revelation for the first time that Brandon Miller was in close proximity to this action and that actually brought the gun to the scene. Uh, but, of course, Miller was not charged. And I think that um, some I think some of that boils down to. Uh, his cooperation, you know, uh, the law enforcement said that both Davis and Miles had been dishonest about uh, the shooting, about how Davis came to be injured when someone in the other vehicle returned fire, and that uh, uh, Miller's account matched almost exactly what they'd seen on surveillance video with witness interviews, and that, uh, as Nate Oates said, that uh, generally law enforcement feel that he was just uh, close to the scene, but not not very... Okay, Stephen, Stephen there's a, a lot to unpack here. Can right. you stick around for one more segment? I'd love to. I'd Can love you stick to. around for sorry, one more sorry segment? Sorry to ramble on, but we were... I know, no, no, it, it, this hours. is really... It, 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 no, this is... Uh, you're, you're, you're supplying great information to our listeners. All right, this is Big Noon Sports. We'll be back. To North Fork and W265CG Tuscaloosa, Tide 100.9, and screaming on the Tide 100.9 app. Welcome back to Big Noon Sports with Lars Anderson, Matt Coulter, and Christian Miller. Welcome. Welcome back in to Hour 2 of Big Noon Sports. We are discussing the breaking news coming out of Tuscaloosa about the, uh, the case of uh, Darius Miles and uh, the death of a young woman and uh, Miles being charged in, uh, with capital murder along with Michael Davis. And according to testimony this morning... Uh, we learned that uh, Darius Miles texted Brandon Miller late that night, early in the morning, um, to bring his gun to where they were, according to police. And when Brandon Miller got to the scene, Miles told Davis, quote, the heat is in the hat. And Detective Brendan Culpepper, who is the lead investigator on this, said that that meant a gun was present. Okay, so right now uh, we are talking with Ste uh, Stephen uh, Dethridge, who uh, was in the courthouse. I, I guess the, the the first question, Stephen, is who was the gun registered to, and is in Bra is Brandon Miller in any sort of uh, possible legal. Uh, trouble here. I, I know that the, the DA was asked um, by a reporter 
why Miller was not charged with anything. And the Tuscaloosa, the chief deputy PA, Paula Whitley, said, quote, that's not a question I can answer. There's nothing we could charge him with, unquote, uh, and, and really charge him with according to the law, she said. So um, can you sort of uh, dig deeper on this, just on, on, on the Brandon Miller front? Definitely. And, I, you know, I, I think that the, the ADA, the assistant district attorney, said it, you know, that uh, if there are... If there was the thought that that Miller had violated a law here, he would have been charged probably contemporaneously at the same time as the others. That that, that would have happened um, pretty immediately. And as far as we know, no one else, the, the police department, the violent crimes unit, the district attorney's office are not seeking other charges. You ask about who the gun is registered to. That's a tricky question uh, because uh, my my understanding walking away from the the hearings this morning is that it was Darius Miles' gun, but I'm not certain about that. And of course, there is no cut and dry sort of national gun registry. There's a record when you buy a handgun from a federally licensed dealer, uh, but if if you're getting it from any other way, it's it's not as though there's some kind of ironclad system uh, where people can just look up a, a serial number and, and figure out who a gun belongs to. Uh, that, that that may exist in CSI and certainly does not exist in, in real life. Uh, the only way there'd be a paper trail linking that gun to someone would be a, a point of sale from a federally licensed firearm dealer. And so it's uh, it's 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 harder than than people may expect to say to definitively who the gun belonged to. My understanding, my takeaway was that is that it was uh, Miles' weapon, but I'm not I'm not sure that that was established 100 percent in the hearings this morning. Um. Okay, yeah, I, I'm efforting to get a, uh, a legal expert on, on the show. Uh, d- d- none of us are, are lawyers. Certainly not. Uh, much, <laughs> much less criminal lawyers. But, um, y- you know, this is, this is troubling news. Uh, it, were, were you surprised that Brandon Miller's name came up? I would say I w- Brandon Miller's name came up almost immediately because it was going through. This was before uh, the the prosecutor spoke first, and that was uh, the assistant district attorney, Miss um, Paula, uh, that you, you mentioned earlier. Was uh, and, and so they were establishing the narrative, talking to investigator Culpepper about what happened and when it happened. And so Brandon Miller's name came up, you know, and, and talking about the the Dodge he was driving and the the handoff of the firearm that came up almost immediately in a three and a half hour hearing. And so I was certainly shocked in the beginning, and it was it was later on towards the end of this hearing when defense attorneys for. Um, from Mr. Davis, from Michael Davis, the alleged shooter, said that uh, they felt threatened that there had been this this misunderstanding or this altercation over the way he was dancing in the street after Alabama handled the LSU Tigers the on the night of the 14th, and that uh, then the driver in Miss Harris's vehicle spoke with three other male friends. Uh, the 
prosecutors argue that that conversation was about where they were going to go next, what the next move was after they moved the strip. The defense attorneys argue that Miles and Davis believed that the driver of Harris's vehicle was speaking to those three other men, and they were planning something bad, some kind of ambush uh, uh, the, to uh, sort out the the altercation that had taken place or the, the argument or the words that were exchanged over the way that uh, that Davis was allegedly dancing in front of the vehicle, the Jeep that they were in. Um, and so I, it was surprising that Miller's name came up, that it came up freely and uh, that it came up so early. Uh, and then you saw the defense try and reframe that and say, you know, Brandon Miller brought the gun and Darius Miles handed the gun to Michael Davis because they thought they were in danger, because they thought this other group of people had bad plans for them. And so you can see how the defense is trying to recontextualize that and, uh, and, and establish the narrative that this was, these guys thought they were in trouble and that uh, this, was not, this was not the capital murder that it's being made out to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't police testify that the windshield of Brandon Miller's car was struck twice by gunfire in the shooting? Is that right? That's correct. All of it had happened in in sort of the uh, in, in this confined area of Gray Street, pretty narrow road uh, right off the strip, you know, in that Publix area, and uh, it's. It, I think that Miller's vehicle was just in close proximity. You saw Nate Oates say today, wrong place, wrong time. You know, this was just a, a case of Miller being at the scene. And, of course, you know, bringing a gun that is eventually used to end someone's life is, I think, probably more than wrong place, wrong time. But when you're talking about criminal <laughs> culpability, that's that's trickier to establish. And you've had the, the ADA say, look, we just don't see any what you know, what law, what 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 felony or misdemeanor law has could Miller have violated by bringing that gun, uh, especially if it belonged to Davis. Uh, I'm sorry to Darius Miles, which is my understanding. Uh, they're just they, they, there is no law in the books that says, you know, and and if they don't believe that he was involved in that. Pre, that uh, preceding altercation, if they don't believe he was involved in the gunfire that followed, uh, I don't think we'll see, you know, the, the prosecution or the, the uh, law enforcement push to uh, expand this beyond what it already is. I think they have the, the two people that they're interested in. So just to be clear, the possession of the firearm that ultimately ended this young woman's life, it went from Miller to Miles, to Davis. Correct. correct? From, from Miller's vehicle, yeah, at least, to, uh, to Darius Miles, to, um, to Michael Davis, Buzz, who then allegedly opened fire. Now, the defense will argue that uh, the driver in Harris's vehicle, a man named Cedric Johnson, uh, fired first, that he had a revolver on him, a pretty large caliber Taurus judge, and that he drew, he fired as he saw... Uh, Buzz, as he saw Davis approached the vehicle, and the prosecution will argue they have clear video that shows Davis firing first. And until you know each side shares those videos, until we see more evidence, until uh, some of these forensic matters are are resolved, uh, it's going to be the the prosecution's word against the defense's. Both sides are saying that uh, the other fired first. 
And so where do we go from here? What, uh, what, what is next? And in, in, in what is, to me, every, this is becoming more complex every time we get more information. Well, I think we'll see a flurry at first, an immediate flurry. I, I led the last segment saying that the judge has not ruled yet whether either defendant will be given a bond. That'll come next. Judge Janik will issue an order that says uh, one, both, or neither of these men will be given a bond and given the opportunity to leave the jail because both of them have been jailed without bond uh, since the night, uh, since January 15th. And it seems like the only time that uh, either of them has left is when uh, Buzz, when, when Davis was leaving for medical treatment. So we'll we'll hear about that. We'll hear uh, you know some motions on some uh, subpoenas that have been issued about camera footage and about records that must be preserved. But the the kind of sad truth about the criminal justice system in Tuscaloosa County and across the state, across the country, is that there is a major major backlog of felony cases. So I just I don't want to take too much of, of your listeners' times, but there there are eight prosecuting attorneys in Tuscaloosa County in the district attorney's office, and every one of those DAs has a case log of over 500 cases, more than 4,000 active cases in that office, and they they generally work them chronologically, especially the ones that can't not can't come to a plea agreement, that can't be uh, resolved by a plea deal, have to go to trial. And so the, the litmus test I give people is uh, uh, three and a half years ago, there was a police officer here killed, Dornell Cousset, who was shot by, uh, who was allegedly shot by a defendant named Luther Bernard Watkins. That was in uh, September 2019. Well, Watkins hasn't been to trial yet. Uh, he's still in jail on capital murder charges. That case is not resolved. And that is, uh, that's, that's not an exception to the rule. These cases just take a long time to to get through that backlog, to get in front, to get to a place where they can be uh, taken to a jury trial. So I think we'll see a flurry, and especially with this much interest in it, you can bet that uh, we at the Thread and outlets across the state and nation are going to be updating these things, uh, updating our audiences for even minor movements about motions and rulings and bond orders and hearings. Um, but all, when we're talking about the conclusion of this case, innocent versus guilty, I, <laughs> that, that, that could be a matter for 2027 or eight or nine, realistically. And I, I don't think it takes uh, a journalism professor to say that uh, the fact that Brandon Miller's name has now been attached to this case Suddenly, this story, uh, in terms of the attention it's going to get from coast to coast, went from about a two in a scale of one to ten to a two to a ten. Do you agree? I'm not sure I would start it at a two <laughs> from the the attention that it right. garnered originally. But yes, it certainly as uh, as more details are released, as we learn more about uh, the people who were there and what they were up to, uh, and and the events that led up to that shooting, people um, people are going to be uh, sharing that. People are going to be hungry for it to find out what what really happened. How did this 23 year old mother end up dead uh, on the Tuscaloosa Strip and and driven to the Walk of Change? and the heart of campus. Um, you throw in the mix uh, two or more Alabama basketball players, and uh, yeah, you, you have a, uh, you're going to have a, a lot of interest on this one. They continue to have a lot of interest on it. 
Well, Stephen, thank you so much for um, sort of filling in a lot of details for us and, and for your reporting uh, from uh, the, the, the court and, uh, and, and, and joining us on air. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on as things evolve because uh, I, I think you have your, the, the, the pulse of this down as well as anyone uh, in our state, that's for sure. So, Stephen, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, and we'll be right back. This is Big Noon Sports. More Big Noon Sports coming up. Want to know what's going on with the Crimson Tide? Download the Tide 100.9 app today. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Mostly cloudy this afternoon and tonight, a chance of widely scattered showers. The high today, 74. Tonight's low, 59. Tomorrow, a very warm and breezy day. A mixture of clouds and sunshine. The high at 81. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 73 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back into Big News Sports. I'm Lars Anderson, my running partner, Christian Miller. And now we're joined by Christian's father, Corey Miller. And Corey, we could use some words of wisdom from a pastor right now. We've been discussing the uh, tragic death of Jamea Harris, uh, who was killed on the strip and uh, to uh, an Alabama basketball player has been charged with capital murder uh, along with a, another young man. Um, without discussing this case, what is your message to young people when you, and I know you speak all around the country, to young people and the, 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 the it, it, it seems like there is more of a thrust to resort to violence than ever before. How, how do we stop this cycle of violence? And, and, and just what is your message to young people when it comes to the issue of gun violence? It's a tough one. Um, you know, when you look at this violence just across our country in itself, it's just, um, it's a hard thing. You know, the shootings, uh, just so many bad things that are happening and, and now we've seen our, our young folks getting caught up you know into that same deal you know I was just speaking to uh, elementary school and um, well I think it was last Friday and my message was to them was do not allow your environment where you're from the atmosphere in which you grew up the people around you to define who you are who you are to become and that's a big deal i think it goes back to your upbringing your raising what you're around the, the, the negativity you know all these different things that athletes young people in general get caught up in and and i won't speak from terms of athletes i mean we know athletes that go to college play basketball or, or football or baseball whatever major sports it is and come from tough environments they come from some call the hood or you know where, where, where gun violence is, is an issue and gangs and, and all sorts of things 
right? And they have a hard time transitioning out of that. It means that, that their mindset becomes warped. Their heart becomes warped. And you try to, you know, help get them out of that. You know, and when they get into these situations, I don't know all the details to this case, uh, you know, gun violence becomes a problem. Carrying guns, I know that's a whole other debate, and I don't want to get into politics of that, but, but man, it, it goes back to that, man. You know, raising your kids in a way that they should go. You know, the Bible says train up a child, means to discipline him in a way that they should go. When they grow old, they don't depart from that. Um, having that foundation. But the reality is a lot of these kids don't have a solid, firm foundation. They don't have a family structure that that teaches that, that preaches that, that holds them accountable to that. And therefore, even though they leave that environment, they take the mindset with them. They take that that attitude, I'm still tough, and I'm this and I'm that, and you're not going to do this to me or, or disrespect me, and then they result to, to, to these types of things. And, man, you know, honestly, you just got to have people in your life don't have a father at home, you know, some type of, that's why I like the mentor. I like to, to minister to these young men, uh, even though the little kids trying to get to them before they get to that place of n- not allowing your environment to define who you are, you know, what God wants you to become. And that, you know, you don't make these decisions. I talk about this all the time, even when you've done great so much and done so many great things, you know, one bad decision changes your life. I mean, think about this basketball player. You know, just one bad decision. You know, you know, anger and, and, and whatever it was took place and you make a decision and, and you know, even though it looks like he didn't pull the trigger, but he handed somebody I mean, come on, man. I mean like you just throw your life away and you and you take away somebody else's life for some foolishness. I mean that's why I love what I'm doing. I love what God called me to do. John Christ is just about, you know, young men and, and, and older men. You know, helping them try to become better fathers, helping them to try to, to be accountable, you know, learning from my own mistakes and trying to help them and make this transition. It's hard. I mean, I understand, you know, you can come up in a horrible situation, but it doesn't mean that you have to be that. You don't have to be a thug. You don't have to be uh, involved in, uh, you know, gangs and gun violence. You can make a better decision. You can do better with your life. You know, you can come out of that. So, that's what I preach all the time, man. And then, of course, number one, I just have to pray. Just keep praying for these young people. But, you know, we have to do better things. We have to have better programs. And, you know, because we know that a lot of, especially I'm dealing with athletes that come from single-family homes or bad situations or very poor environments where this is all around them. This is all they see, right? And then you got to give them some kind of help. And, and um uh, and then it's up to them to make those those better decisions. But it's it's hard, man. That's a tough situation, and I just pray for that family that lost a daughter and a sister and a granddaughter, and and I pray for this young man. And I pray for this young man that you know, and that man, you know, you, you, you made one bad decision, right? I go into prisons as well, and and I, you know, I remember talking to this one young man. He man, I just made a one horrible decision. Because I was on drugs and he, he killed somebody. Now he's in prison for basically the most part of his life. And, you know, but I still want to minister to those people too. Because God does forgive. God does heal. God does show grace and mercy. And, and so it's a lot, man. We live in a world where it's a lot, brother. And ministry is needed. Uh, mentorship is needed. Good people and, and athletic programs are needed because these kids are dealing with a lot. And, 
Hey man, we just gotta we gotta do what we can do. But but you know, I don't know what the final answer is. Well said. Uh, I want to shift gears, but before I do that, I want to give a big thanks to our partners at the Good Feet Store. They offer premium arch supports designed to alleviate and eliminate all types of pain, hip pain, back pain, knee pain, you name it. Oh, and did I mention their first class superior customer service? And backed by popular demand, the Good Feet Store is giving away a free pair of premium shoes with a qualified purchase. That's a $140 value. So stop in your local Good Feet Store today. We have one here in Midtown Village in Tuscaloosa. It's try before you buy. You've got nothing to lose. So go find your local uh, store at goodfeet.com. Again, that's the Goodfeet Store, Tuscaloosa. That's Midtown Village. All right, I want to shift gears to football real quick, and uh, I want to play a quick little game with you. Uh, I'm going to ask you – I'm going to give you a couple quarterbacks, and I want you to tell me where you think they're going to play at next season. All right, I got about three of them. I'll name off to you real quick, starting with number one, Derek Carr. Where are we going to see him next year? <laughs> Oh, wow. I think you're going to see him in New Orleans. Hmm. I, I think, you know, they're ready to move on from Jameis Winston. And, uh, you know, he did well for a while. And, and then he got the knee injury and then all sorts of things have happened. But I think New Orleans, Derek Carver, they, they already got a, a great structure offensively. They got some really good wide receivers. They got Alvin Kamara at the running back position. Uh, they, you know, they got the Swiss Army knife. I mean, they are set up. All they need is a solid trigger, man. I think the New Orleans Saints will be a landing spot for Derek Carr. All right. We got our brother that's in the darkness right now. I don't know if he's emerged just yet. Um, I guess that's too <laughs> determined. Aaron Rodgers, where do you see him at next year? If he returns to football, I guess we're waiting on that answer, too, from the darkness. Yeah, first we got to get that. I mean, you know, <laughs> but I think Green Bay is ready to <laughs> – I think Green Bay is ready to move on, uh, and because they just need to to go go forward, you know, let the past be the past. So I think he's definitely out of Green Bay, regardless. I think he does come back. I think he come out of the darkness and try to to extend to some light, and that light will be in Long Island, New York. That happens to play in our stadium, Giants Football Stadium. That's the New York Football Jets. I know they're lobbying. Um, I think this is the, the. I mean, this team has got a lot of pieces. The Jets are not that far. And you're talking about a team that haven't done anything in a long time. He could be that missing piece. Uh, their quarterback situation has been horrific. Um, they have drafted horrible at that position. We're going back to Sam Donald, uh, you know, the Zach there now, the Wilson. And I mean, so listen, I think the Jets with the running game that they have, with the defense that they have, that's a great spot for Aaron Rodgers. And I think that's where he'll end up in New York, uh, you know, in the green with the New York Jets. All right, last one. And this for your your team, the the New York football giants. You got Daniel Jones. Uh, there's a lot of uh, speculation right now as his contract uh, extension, you know, is, is looming right now. Do you see uh, New York going and giving him that, that long-term contract, or, or do you see him uh, ultimately suiting up elsewhere? Now, that's probably the hardest of the three to me because I don't know. I mean, the guy took him to the second round of the playoffs. And granted, Saquon Barkley, who's also what's going to happen with him. So, Daniel Jones to me is not the long term answer. I just I I want to like him. I really do. I mean, I like him as a person. But I'm saying I want to say, yeah, that's the guy. Paid a man forty five million dollars. Uh, you know, give him a long term deal, and then maybe he go right back to the old Daniel Jones, turning the ball over and you know putting the, the uh, defense in bad positions. I don't know. I, I think with Brian Dayball, who, who's excellent, one coach of the year, I mean, this guy did what he did with, with, with in one year with him. I think 
you know, to uh, Daniel Jones' credit, he did not have the offensive weapons either. I mean, so you look at the receivers, all the receivers were injured, banged up, beat up. Uh, they traded away probably the best, the best overall receiver. Um, so I think knowing the Giants the way I do, they're not going to have a big-time prolific quarterback. They feel like they can, they're, they're a blue-collar football team, right? They're a run, let's run the football, let's be physical on both sides of the ball, let's, let's play action pass, use tight end play, and then let's take shots down, down the field when we can. And, and I think they can do that with Daniel Jones and this Brian Dayball offense. So I'm going to say that he stays in New York with the Giants and, and uh, they'll add some pieces to help him on the outside at wide receiver. And you'll have a nice long-term deal. I don't totally agree with that, but I think that's what's going to happen. Good stuff. Corey, can you stick around for another segment? Yeah, man, I'm free. I'm just eating me a, a keto salad right now. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. This is Big Noon Sports. We'll be right back with uh, Big Big Miller and Little Miller. Uh- this is Big Noon Sports with Lars, Matt, and Christian. Because all you're going to do is fail. It's Vanderbilt, right? And and and, uh, and he finally got what the Louisville job, some other good jobs, but. But sometimes you, you have to be careful about taking these types of jobs because you set up and you fail, and you're never going to get a chance again. I almost wanted Eric Benjamin to just sit there, see how long Andy's going to be there, and be like head coach in waiting. We've heard those terms before, those that terminology before. Head coaching, maybe you sit right there, and then that's now you fall right into the lap of having Patrick Mahomes, knowing this offense. You've been around it for years. I know Andy might have three to five years left. Just sit right there, but. I think he wants to prove that, hey, I can call plays. He wants to prove I can lead an offense. I can be the guy. I can put in the game plan, and this is all me. Nobody else is going to be able to get the credit. They're not going to say Andy Reid slash Eric Enemy, which all the, the, you know, the networks say when they talk about this offense of Kansas City. So I understand why he did it and said, hey, you know what? I need to break away so that I can say this is my offense. This is me calling the plays. It's nobody else. But if it don't work, he's never, ever going to get an opportunity to be a head coach again. So to me, it's a very risky decision. I understand why he did it. But at the same time, you know, I might have went the opposite way, like I said, just sat right there and said, you know what, let me just be the coach in waiting. And I inherit a team that's good. I inherit a team that's already built for success. And I can be successful as a head coach. But, man, the elephant in the room at the end of the day for me still is, you know, the, 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 the just the road that black coaches have to go uh, in order to become a head coach. It's just, it is what it is. People can argue all they want to, but it's just solid proof is still right there that we still have an issue, as you said, the blackout in the NFL in this, this league that, that black coaches still have a hard time. I agree. There's definitely still a lot of work to do, and we've talked about this. Uh, before and uh, in terms of you know getting minorities uh, more coaching opportunities and, and not having so many obstacles they have to go through uh, but when you look at it, I mean there, there has been other minority coaches hired in, in recent years you got Lovey Smith you know Jim Caldwell uh, Todd Bowles Hugh Jackson uh, Vance Joseph of uh, the Broncos Anthony Lynn um, you know Steve Wilkes uh, and again this probably should be way more names however you know, if if teams were willing to hire those guys, why is it a, a, a African American coach who's 
uh, won a pair of Super Bowls and has been a part of so much success. Why is it he just can't get that opportunity? You know, that that's that's just my question. And I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, because, again, I'm not saying there's not an issue um, with minority coaches. I, I definitely feel like there is work to do in the NFL. However, if, if guys like Steve Wilkes and Anthony Lynn and these other names can get that opportunity, why can't this guy who has two Super Bowl wins in recent years get that opportunity? It just leads me to believe that maybe there is something that's holding him back. Well, I think Laura said it best. I mean, when you look at it, the only thing that they had, well, he's not calling play. That's what everybody has said. He's not calling plays, but then I, I debunked that and refute that because Laura just said it. Peterson, Taylor, none of those guys called plays. They didn't have to go through 15 interviews. So that's the disparity to me, you know, right there, right? It's just, it's like, okay, I get it, but then over here you hiring this guy. You hiring this other guy and this other guy. It's not that issue. So it's still there. I mean, yes, and then even Anthony Lynn and those guys, Steve Wilkes, you know, look at his situation. You know, what he did with the Panthers, and it's just an easy shoe-in. He showed. He had he had an opportunity to show I can be the head coach of this football team, and they go hire Frank Wright, right, who hasn't had some impeccable record. I mean, and I think, matter of fact, well, he got a big job. He didn't call plays either. I don't believe. I think I'm correct in that. Um, I so, think you are too. You know, it's like all these situations. Yeah, they power coaches. I mean, but you know, at, look at the, the the tenure. Look how long the leash is. One year for two of those coaches, I believe, Steve Wilk uh, and uh, Morris, I believe, got one year. Love you, Smith. That was fine. Lovey Smith, I mean, Houston, back-to-back, one-year coaches, boom, boom, out. Now they have another black coach, D'Amico Ryans, who played there. I mean, let's see how that goes. I mean, but look, you have to look at the overall pie, and I don't know you are, but I'm just saying just look at the evidence is so clear. And I just wish we get past this stuff. Listen, I've said this before. I'm, I'm, you know, I've heard guys say, hey, go support this. This black business, and I will, but I'll, if the black business isn't good, <laughs> you know, if it's a, <laughs> a, a, a shop and the dude is terrible at a line-up car, I'm not taking my car. I don't care how black you are. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to take my car to the best place that can do the job. Now, do I support? Yes. If it's good and they're worthy, I'm, yeah, I'm going to give them because that's just the way it is. But I'm not saying hire a coach if he's not good enough, if he's not worthy enough. I get that. But at the same time, if a guy is worthy, he deserves the exact same chance as anybody else. That's all I'm saying with this whole thing. And right now, the the, the NFL is horrible at it. The NBA is great at it. I mean, nobody's saying that about the NBA because those opportunities are given much more so than the NFL. Sir? Not long long ago, I was talking with uh, Harold uh, Goodwin, who uh, was the assistant head coach for the Tampa Bay Bucks and uh, also the running game coordinator. And he had interviewed, and he's African-American, he had interviewed for several head coaching jobs, and he flat out told me on the record that they were all token interviews. And I asked him, how do you know that? He said, well, it's pretty simple. The owner who's in charge of actually making the decision of whether or not I'm going to get hired, didn't show up for the interview. 
So <laughs> it's just wow. like, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, it, 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 and so that it was just a way to get around the Rooney rule. So yep. I, I know this is a tough topic, but I mean, is there institutional racism in uh, among NFL owners, uh, you know, because you look at the percentage of players, right, who are African-American, as opposed to the percentage of coaches, and it doesn't even come close to matching up. Right. I mean, you know, it, it is what it is, man. And I, I've never shied away from being open and honest about it because, I, you know, I had nothing of a racial thing with me. I mean, <laughs> my, my whole family is all Catholic colors, right? I don't I don't roll like that. I, I'm about you know God created us all and He loves all of us as His children as the children of God and 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 I think He He would want all of us to have a fair opportunity to succeed whatever the field is whatever the, the sport is or whatever the career is and, and unfortunately you're right, Lars. It goes down to the owners. The owners are not comfortable. A lot of them are not comfortable. Uh, allowing an African American man or minority to run their program, and that's still a setback. It is what it is, and we we have to deal with this elephant in the room. And I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but the way you get past it is to have these healthy conversations, not anger, not yelling and screaming like people do with politics, getting mad at each other and cut family members. No, let's have healthy conversations and, and, and see how we can help better this situation. You know, and I, they are doing more things for black coaches, and even in college. And, you know, they're getting opportunities. I get the senior bowl. I appreciate Jim Nagy bringing a lot of the HBCU coaches in to give them that experience. They're doing it. Look at the XFL. I don't know if you guys watched that. I mean, half the coaches, head coaches of the XFL are black. I mean, so they're giving them opportunities and starting to see more of that so they can be more prepared to be these head coaches, that you can be able to have more confidence and giving them these types of jobs because there are a lot of smart, very smart men in the National Football League that can coach, that can, can build a team, that can be a leader of men, you know, all these different things. And just as there are great white men to do the same. But, again, level the playing field. And then and when you level the playing field, hey, well, you feel like they could lead your team, make a decision and go with that. But, man, just don't have token interviews. Just to, to, to you know, support the Rooney Rule. To me, that's wrong, and the NFL has a long way to go. But I hope that down the road we can have more healthy conversations about this and see change. That these guys will start getting jobs, like guys like Eric Bieniemy, that he'll get his opportunity one day, and hopefully he'll prove himself to be one of the best with the commander. But until they get a quarterback, I don't see it. Bottom line is get the best person for the job. Don't give a damn if you're black, white, red, or blue. We all bleed the same. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Well put. Yep. And, uh, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. You're always welcome on the show. Uh, great insight, as always. We really appreciate it. And uh, also appreciate your uplifting words that you provided our listeners at the at the top of uh, your segment. So have a, have a great rest of the week. And yes, this is Big Noon Sports. Thank you so much, Corey. This is Big Noon Sports. We'll be right back. This is the Big Noon Sports Network. A national championship team covering a national championship team. The best sports talk in the state. Tide 100.9 and streaming on the Tide 100.9 app. Hey, hey. 
Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Mostly cloudy this afternoon and tonight, a chance of widely scattered showers. The high today, 74, tonight's low, 59. Tomorrow, a very warm and breezy day, a mixture of clouds and sunshine, the high at 81. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 75 degrees in Tuscaloosa. The best sports talk in the state. Tide 100.9 and streaming on the Tide 100.9 app. Welcome back into Big Noon Sports. Lars Anderson and Christian Miller. Christian, uh, your your big takeaway from just uh, the the saga of, of Eric Bieniemy, and I and I know you shared a little bit of it last uh, last segment, but uh, just you know the, the big picture of what has happened with Eric Bieniemy, I, I I simply don't understand it. Um, you know, I know some people theorize, well, he just doesn't interview well, but man, the the results are on the field. I mean, he has done things, and and I know that Andy Reid supposedly is the one that calls the the majority of the plays, but maybe you could explain to listeners just exactly as you understand it what Bieniemy's role has been with the Chiefs as the offensive coordinator. Well, I haven't played there or under him, Lars. So I'll be honest; I don't even think I could give you that. I mean, because it's different for each situation. You have some head coaches that call the plays. You have some offensive coordinators that call the plays. It just depends. And that's kind of what you and my dad were talking about, whether it was like Frank Reich or whoever. Um, I, I guess Andy Reid is typically known to call plays. However, uh, Eric Bieniemy is heavily involved in that offense. Um, to what extent, I don't know. I mean, because you hear LaShawn McCoy saying that he wasn't responsible for any of the passing game. That was all Andy Reid. Um, could that be the case? Sure. I mean, I've been in situations where there's sometimes a coordinator – is uh, only responsible for mostly the run game. And then uh, you have like a safeties or DBs coach who's like an assistant defensive coordinator who's responsible uh, on the back end. So uh, I can't speculate uh, enough because I'm not, I have never played for him or that system. Um, But what I can say is um, based off his, uh, you know, credibility and in his success over the past few years, is he more than deserving of the opportunity? A hundred percent. Um, but as I also was just mentioning, I don't think it's entirely just a minority thing because you look at the other coaches I've named, they've gotten opportunities. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an issue. There, there is an issue with minority coaches getting those opportunities. It does feel like they have to go over way uh, uh, bigger hurdles and whatnot to get those jobs. But it just something just seems a little off to me that they're not so quick to hire Eric Bieniemy, who is a minority, but has won two Super Bowls versus uh, Anthony Lynn or uh, D'Amico Ryan, who's a phenomenal defensive coordinator, but um, he hasn't won two Super Bowls, but they, you know, he, he got the job. Lovey Smith was able to get a job. So that's just where I'm just trying to figure it out. So I'm with you. I'm a little confused as well, but we got to get out of here. We can talk a little bit about uh, more about it tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. This is Big Noon Sports. We'll see you guys next time.